0: I uh, am Pastor Andrew Gross. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethel Christian Fellowship, and uh, today we are continuing our series on uh, the God's vision for His people in ten words. So, um, <clears throat> if uh, we remember, just to refresh our memories a little bit, this this in this series. God. We're we're finding out about how God uh, wants to shape a just society. He wants to shape not just us, our individual lives, but He's actually trying to shape a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. He's trying to shape a a a a whole society of people in a just and right way. And so, uh, what often gets called the Ten Commandments, and for this series, we're calling the Ten Words. Uh, the uh, word, it's just as legitimate to translate uh, the word uh, in Hebrew uh, into word or command, and uh, we're, we're choosing uh, the word word here, and uh, it's just as legitimate to call it that word. Uh, this is how God is shaping his people. Uh, last week we talked about how uh, the, the language of the Ten Commandments is the same language as a treaty or a covenant between a great king and a subject people. If you were to get into a time machine and go back 3,000 plus years uh, and uh, arrive at uh, into the Middle East at this time, you would find out that the language they're using in Exodus chapters 20 through 23 is the same language that's used if uh, a king were to come and conquer a new territory and then he Set out an agreement with the people, and the people said, "Yes, we will. You will be our great king, and we will follow you in your ways." So it's the same kind of, uh, <clears throat> same kind of language, uh, and and as we have learned already, the purpose of this is so that God can shape this just society, this special people. Uh, it says, uh, the chapter right before." The Ten Commandments it says, "You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. Uh, for the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Uh, <clears throat> and if we remember, we've gone over this several times already, but." Uh, A a, a priest is somebody who mediates between two different parties. A priest is somebody, their main job is to mediate between two different parties. And in this case, one party is God and the other party is humanity. And what a priest does by mediating is they, they go before God on behalf of the people and they say, please God, hear our cries, hear our pleas, listen to us, have mercy on us. But then they also turn around and they go to the people and they say, listen to God, obey God, follow God, uh, and, and they also represent God to the people. So the people learn who God really is through, this, uh, through the priest, through the mediator. And God was trying to use the nation of Israel to be that priesthood, that kingdom of priests for the whole nation, for the whole world. So the whole world was supposed to discover who God really is through the Israelites, they, the Israelites were supposed to be the ones who expressed God's true nature to the people. Um, and, uh, and it was supposed to be, they were supposed to do it together. They were supposed to be able to look at how they interacted with each other, how just their society was, how they treated the poor, how they loved one another, how they shared with one another, uh, how righteous they were. They were supposed to look at that and they were supposed to say, ah, oh, now I know who God is really is that was that was what it was all about Uh, we also know from this passage that uh that this is all started in grace a lot of people unfortunately over the centuries have thought that they have to obey the ten commandments as a way to get into god's grace like god's not going to show them favor or grace or mercy until they've got these ten commandments down it's quite the opposite uh, as this passage here makes it clear, it starts out with God rescuing them from slavery. It starts out with God's grace. It starts out with God saying, "I'm going to rescue you from the darkness, rescue you from slavery. You're going to be my people." That's how it. That's how it's all birthed in grace. And uh, and then the next chapter, just before we get to the actual Ten Commandments, uh, God reminds them of this one more time. He says, "I, I am." Uh, which means, it's uh, how you would translate the name Yahweh. I am uh, the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so, so God is uh, starting the whole thing in grace. <clears throat> it's important to keep in mind. So now that brings us to this scene. Uh, at this scene, uh, everyone's gathered around Mount Sinai, the Israelites. Uh, they've escaped months before from slavery, they're uh, in front of the mountain. The mountain is quaking because God's very presence is coming down to the top of the mountain. There's, uh, he's surrounding himself with thick black clouds. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's fire. Uh, there's uh, this trumpet blast that's uh, loud. It's so, it's so frightening and so fearful that people are actually trembling in fear. They're actually trembling in fear. <clears throat> um. And uh, and that is when, for the one time only, all the Israelites get to hear the direct voice of God. All the other uh, parts of uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the people are hearing through mediators, through Moses and his brother Aaron. God speaks it to them, and they bring it to the people. Uh, but in this one instance, they get to hear the actual voice of God, an audible voice, Um And so the very first thing, the very first part of this treaty, or the first part of this covenant or agreement between God and his new uh, people, the Israelites, is uh, these two commandments that Pastor Steve talked about last week, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Um, And uh, Pastor Steve asked us last week, and I hope, uh, I, I know it deeply affected me to be thinking about this all week, I hope... Uh, you were letting the Holy Spirit impact you and how you took this in. But we, uh, Pastor Steve asked us last week um, this question, who or what is your king? And that's another way of saying who or what is your idol? Who or what uh, is your king? Now, probably you know, 90% of us in this room would say, oh, I, I, it's definitely Jesus. Jesus is definitely my king. I, I, I know that for sure. But then Pastor Steve asked us to think a little more deeply about that. You know, it's kind of easy with our lips to profess, Jesus is my king, God's my king. But he asked us to think about questions like, who or what do you depend on? Who or what do you fear? Who or what do you love? And those questions, depending on how we answer them, it's much more insightful about who our real king or our real God is is. Um, Other questions like that, who do you serve? Who do you obey? Uh, Who or how do you choose your goals? Who or how do you make your plans? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? The way you answer those questions are going to give us a lot more insight into who our true king is. and In other words, who our God is. Is it this same God that appeared on Sinai and that has now appeared to us in the flesh in Jesus Christ? Or is it an idol? Uh, We looked at this definition last week of what an idol is, um, uh, and it's simply this. Uh, It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God gives. That is the definition of an idol. And it's been said that our hearts are idol-making factories. If you just let somebody go on their own, they would just churn out idol after idol after idol in their heart. And we don't even need the little statues that they would use in the ancient world to make an idol. Uh, Pastor Steve had us look at this. Uh, remember, this is an a, a image of a the ancient ziggurat in, in, in uh, ancient Babylonia, they had these uh, temples, and at the very top of the staircase, there would be an idol. Uh, and so he asks us to consider what, what were the idols in our hearts. Some of us, it's, it's, uh, it's nationalism. It's um, our country before anyone, any other country. Others of us, it's, it's money. That's what's at the top there. Others of us, uh, it's medicine. Uh, healthcare, care, uh, feeling secure about our health because we always know there's a hospital uh, to go to. Uh, and then, of course, there's deeper idols of the heart. Love, success, power, approval, reputation, control, all of those things. Uh, and then, of course, there's, there's even uh, other idols that uh, Pastor Steve mentioned last week. Technology, science, a political party, work, family. You know, work and family is good, but some of us idolize it. Uh, where we live, whether we live uh, in a cool urban area or a cool suburban area or a cool r- rural area, that's some of us idolize that. Individualism, uh, the environment. Some of us idolize our race. Some of some of us idolize the media, or some of us idolize hating the media. Um, <clears throat> uh, Sometimes uh, there's other ideologies that we idolize, like uh, the idea, ideology of revolution or material prosperity or guaranteed security, or some of us idolize worldviews like relativism or hedonism or consumerism. There's, there's so many isms. <clears throat> any of these things, some of which have some merit uh, on their own, any of these things could become an idol. <clears throat> and so Pastor Steve asked us, last week will you and I will we covenant to make God our king and to be his subject or will we follow one of these other idols? And depending how you're answering that question uh, <laughs> um, then we can move on to the next part of this series this is this is if you haven't settled this in your heart now is the time to settle this who Or what is your king? And will you covenant with uh, and make God your king and be his subject? That takes us to the third command. The third command. The third command. Remember, these commands, these words, are meant to shape a just society that can mediate between God and humanity. Humanity, the rest of humanity, is supposed to see how we keep this covenant and see our, the, the just shape of our society. And from that, they're supposed to be able to conclude, oh, that's who God really is. Which is, which is scary because Jesus, at one point, quoting the prophet Isaiah, he said that, um, or actually Paul said this, uh, quoting the prophet Isaiah, he said that um, the, the Gentiles blaspheme God because of you. So uh, that, that people actually look at us, instead of seeing who God really is, They actually think less of who God really is. Um, So what we're going to talk about today is kind of right at the heart and the center of this whole issue. So the third command in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, reads like this. uh, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not leave unpunished anyone who misuses his name. Now, this uh, command, uh, often people are more familiar with the kind of more famous language from the King James Version do not use uh, the name of your God in vain. Uh, the word misuse is actually a little more accurate, uh, what it probably meant to the original Hebrews when they first heard this. So, we're going to uh, talk about that, um, <clears throat> about why that is uh, the case. Um, so what, what, what could this, if if we're going to understand what it means for us today, we have to understand, first of all, what it meant for them back 3,000 and a half years ago, uh, when they first heard this, what did it mean when they heard this phrase, do not misuse the name of the Lord. Um, so a few, um, comments about for the Israelites and for all the people living around them, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Akkadians, the Hittites, all those people, this is what they would have, when they when they uh, understand what a name is, this is what they would have understood. First of all, um, a name for the ancient people of the Near East is more literally translated as reputation. A name is more literally translated as reputation. The word in Hebrew, siem, for name, it can just as legitimately be translated as fame or honor or power or reputation as it is translated as name. And we still have a little, we still retain this meaning a little bit today, don't we? If somebody has been um, slandered or libeled, they'll say something like, my good name has been ruined. Uh, um, Another important meaning of the word name is when uh, something wasn't considered fully created, until it was named. Uh, we see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the story of the creation. Uh, you guys remember that story? Um, uh, they're going through the story, and uh, it says that you know, God called the uh, darkness night and the light day. Him calling those things. That was him naming those things. All right? So uh, people understood in the ancient world that until something was named, it wasn't actually fully created. Um, A name was true identity. Uh, A name was who you actually were. And uh, a name, because it expressed your true identity, most people in those days, they went more by their titles or their roles. And there's still some societies around where the name is considered so sacred, so important, because it expresses your true identity, that more often people, not very many people know your name, your actual name. They might know your title, or they might know your role, but they wouldn't necessarily know your name. Um, the people of the ancient Near East would call upon the special name of a god or a goddess if they wanted to make a treaty or a covenant or some special agreement, and if they called upon or invoked the name of that god or goddess, that's what made that treaty or that covenant sacred and holy and, and solemn. Um, if you called on a god or goddess, uh, their, if you called on their name, then, uh, then it said, okay, now we have a legitimate treaty. Now we have a legitimate contract or agreement. And, and this is important for what I'm going to explain in a minute. Uh, the way they would call upon these gods or goddesses is they would invoke these gods or goddesses to say, um, you know, basically, if I'm not going to uh, follow this treaty, if I'm not going to uphold my end of the bargain, then may this... God or goddess, may this deity strike me down, may he or she visit their wrath upon me, um, is kind of how they would handle that. And then people were so afraid of the wrath of the various uh, gods they worshipped, they, they said, this will guarantee that I'm going to be truthful, that I'm going to be honest. Uh, people did that in court, too. If if they were taken to court and they said, no, I, I, I swear I didn't steal that neighbor's cow, um, they would, uh, they would invoke the name of a god or goddess when they would swear and, and say, if I'm lying, then may their wrath come upon me, all right? And they would invoke the name of that god or goddess. That's, that's how important names were. Um, and if you knew someone's name or if you knew or god, or god, the name of god or goddess, you, it, it was thought you had power over them. You could actually in some way control them or had some sort of authority over them if you knew their true Name and in most of these these uh, cultures in the ancient Near East, misuse of a name was was considered worthy of a very severe punishment. It was considered, uh, in, in fact, in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, uh, <clears throat> which is sort of their their version of what's of the afterlife. Um, people were instructed that when they died and they went through this this uh, journey, uh, they were instructed at the in the judgment room. To, say, to name all 160 or some gods or goddesses and say, I did not misuse their names. I did not misuse their name. They were supposed to go through each one. And if they had misused one of their names, they were considered unworthy of, of, uh, um, of, being, of, of going to the good place afterwards. So um, that kind of gives you a little bit of uh, a sense of how important names were. And that helps us understand what it means to misuse a name. What does it mean to misuse a name? Um, first of all, using a name as an insult or a part of profanity was considered uh, a, a terrible violation, both for the Israelites and all the, all the people around them. To, mis, to use a name as an insult or as part of uh, profanity. Um, uh, also, being overly casual with a name, being irreverent with it, using it in kind of an empty way, using it in, in a frivolous way or a trivial way. Uh, remember, names were so important, they expressed the true identity. And if you sort of use someone's name casually, that was considered a great violation. This was especially true of how people thought of gods and goddesses. Um, you, you dared not use such an important name casually. And then there's this idea of blasphemy. And blasphemy, it's, it's, the, name gets thrown, the word gets thrown around, but it's, it's, it, it means something very specific. Um, remember I said a name equals a reputation. A name equals a reputation. And so blasphemy essentially meant calling someone's reputation into question. So if somebody has a reputation for being honest, you would blaspheme their name by saying, uh, yeah, actually, I know a couple times he wasn't actually very honest. Uh, that was considered blasphemy. And this was especially uh, deadly and dangerous if you did that towards uh, a deity, towards a god or a goddess. Uh, you say, oh, yeah, you know, the goddess of so and such and such, yeah, she's actually all, not all that. Um, <clears throat> uh, that. That would be considered blasphemy, uh, dragging their name through the mud, saying, Their name was uh, less, the reputation they had was less honest than we had been led to uh, believe. Uh, Even worse than blasphemy was this idea of taking an oath or a vow or a promise in a false way. And what I mean by this is, remember I said, if somebody was in court and they're being accused of stealing their neighbor's cow, and they said, no, 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 I swear I didn't take uh, a neighbor's cow. And, uh, and then they invoke the name of a god or goddess, and they say, you know, if I'm lying, then may I be struck down with uh, some terrible disease with the wrath of this, this goddess or something. Uh, that's what they're supposed to say. And um, if they were lying about that, if they were invoking that name falsely, if they were swearing by that name falsely, that was considered uh, one of the most horrendous crimes possible in the ancient Near East to falsely make a promise, make a promise that uh, they had no intention to keep. And even worse than all of this is magical, the magical use of a name. Now, what I mean by magic is, uh, in the, most of the ancient Near East people believed in magic. And, uh, uh, in, and what I'm talking about here, when, you, when, remember I said, if you knew someone or something's name, you, it was thought you had power over them. And if you were to use a god or goddess's name in a magical way, in in other words, in a way of kind of forcing that god or goddess to give you some sort of favor, some sort of uh, help in some way, and you use magic to kind of force them to do it because you knew their secret name, that was considered um, a horrible violation. Because basically, the nature of things was reversed. It's supposed to be humans are down here and gods and goddesses are up here And uh, with magic, you reverse the situation, and now you're up here, and you're more important. You're actually telling the deities what you want to be done, all right? So the magical use of a name was considered especially uh, horrendous. And so that gives us a little bit of insight into when the Israelites first heard this command, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, it gives us a little insight into what how what they understood that to mean that misuse, uh, and it's 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 uh, they thought they took this so seriously that uh, there there's that right in the command itself. It says that he will not leave unpunished anyone who misuses his name, and so <clears throat> um, and 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 this commandment and the one right before it. Uh, the second command, the second word, uh, those are the only two where there's an actual punishment that's sort of threaded into uh, the, the word itself. Um, that's how important it was not to misuse uh, the name of the Lord. Uh, now, the, the, uh, it took centuries and centuries, but the, the, the Jews finally began to, they, they were so afraid of violating this that they um, began to, first off, uh, even though the Old Testament is clear, it is possible to pronounce and say the name of God. The the Jews would actually refuse to say His name in any in any instance, and they would re- and, and if it were, they were reading Scripture out loud and they were going through and they came to the name of God, they would actually replace it with Adonai, which means the Lord. They would say the Lord instead of Yahweh, His His name, which which literally means. Uh, I am who I am, or to, um, I, I will be who I will be is how you could uh, translate that. So instead of saying that or pronouncing that, they were so scared of misusing it that they would actually say the word Lord instead of, um, instead of Yahweh. Uh, they were so, eventually by the Middle Ages, uh, the Jews got so worried about misusing the name, they would actually, the scribes, when they were copying down the scripture, remember they didn't used to have type, they had to, they had to copy it by hand, when they would reach a point in the scripture where they were supposed to write the name of God, they would actually, so they'd write the name of God, then they would, they would stop what they were doing, they would go take a very thorough bath to cleanse themselves, then they'd put on a fresh set of clothes, uh, and, and then they would throw away the pen they had been using, or the, the instrument they'd been using, the writing instrument, and then they would use an entirely new one because they were so worried that if they that they would somehow misuse his name. That's how that's how uh, sacred they came to regard his holy name. Um. And uh, so, um, now <clears throat> I want to ask us when we we talk about these um, misuses of the name of God, um, is this. Is this any, does any of this apply to us today? Does any of this um, speak to our culture and the potential misuses of God's name uh, today? Now, insults and profanity. Um, I, my guess is probably most of us in this room would be very quick to say, "Oh no, 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 no! I, I never, I never use uh, God's name uh, as an insult or a profanity." Um, and I, I, I sure hope that's true. I. I will say that, um, of course, excluding everyone in this room, obviously. But I have heard evangelical Christians who profess to be very devout and and love God and and want to be biblical Christians. I have heard them uh, people use God's name uh, as an insult or as a curse word or uh, profanity, and um, uh, and and so I, I I think this actually potentially does. Uh, apply to us, um, today. Um, what about though, now now you might say, oh, I've never, ever, oh, Pastor Andrew, I've never, ever used God's name that way. What about using his name casually in a, maybe an irreverent way or a frivolous or a trivial way or, or in kind of an empty way? You know, Jesus talked about, he, he, uh, mention the phrase vain repetition. Some people pray with vain repetition. Um, and and it's, it's not, I mean, repeating the truth is fine, that's good. But some people repeat it in an empty way. They're sort of mindlessly. Um, uh, is that ever um, a problem today? Um, uh, that we might be overly casual with the sacred name of God. Uh, and what about, what about, what about blasphemy? Remember I said blasphemy is calling someone's good name into question, someone's reputation into question. Uh, actually, uh, if somebody has a reputation for being really honest and we say, oh, actually, that's not really true. I, I know that uh, you know they're actually not that honest. Uh, that is considered uh, blaspheming a name. Do we ever call God's good reputation into question? Do we ever um, uh, say that, you know, this, you know, yeah, God says all this great boastful stuff about himself. He's so high and mighty. And then, and then we, but we call that into questions that ever apply to any of us today. Um, now this false oath thing, some of us might say, well, you know, we don't really swear oaths today. That's not really a common thing. We don't really make vows today. That's not very, very common. Um, and I want us to uh, think about, about this idea of a false swear. Remember I said um, the way people used to take oaths is they would say, and uh, whether it was um, Hebrew or not a Hebrew, they would say, you know, um, if I don't fulfill this oath, then may God visit me, may he treat me, may he punish me ever so severely is kind of the phrase they would use if I don't fulfill this oath. Now, we might not use that exact same language today, but do we ever make promises and um, when we actually maybe don't have any intention uh, to keep them? Or we make promises uh, and we even say, you know, God's going to help me with this promise. But when it comes time, when we're tested on that promise, we actually don't call upon God to help us keep the promise. We're kind of okay breaking it. And we it doesn't even really strike our conscience. Um uh, and, and, and in fact, you know, Jesus had, it says in the New Testament, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's actually referring to this command because his audience, his original, original audience, when they would make a promise or make an oath, uh, they would usually call upon the name of the Lord. And so he's, what he's really doing is saying, you know, anytime you make a promise, you're, you're asking God to help you keep that promise. If you then go ahead and break that promise, you're, you're really dragging God's name down when you uh, you're 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 making a false oath in a way um, because you're you're secretly hoping God's going to help you keep the promise but you're not even willing uh, to go through with it. So now this last one, I'll, I'll bet um, there there, there are many of you in this room who would say, oh no 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 of course I would never want to use God's name magically and some of you said I I don't, I don't I don't even read those you know those Harry Potter books about magic or anything like that. Um, uh so uh now i i my guess is very few christians would knowingly try to use god's name in a magical way but i have to say sometimes the way i hear some people pray is they the they they pray in a way as if they're they're holding god captive or hostage with how they pray as if uh, now that I've prayed, and now that I've prayed in the name of Jesus, and not just in the name of Jesus, now that I've prayed in the name of Jesus, and they've a lot of emphasis to it, then somehow that's going to force God's hand, and God is going to have to do what you've just forced him to do with your prayer. Does that make sense? Now, you might not be thinking that's magical, but I, 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 would, I, I would ask yourself... Has that that ever been in your heart to pray in such a way as to force God, to extract from God some kind of favor you think he wouldn't otherwise give you? Scripture in James says that we can pray with confidence because he is generous without finding fault. That's the basis of expecting God to answer our prayers. just that he's generous, all right, and he's loving and he's giving. That's the basis of our confidence of answered prayer, but some of us feel like we have to add something to kind of twist God's arm somehow to get him to do something for us. So how how are we gonna how are we going to how are we gonna deal with this? And if any of the, the questions I've just asked, and if this is a struggle for any of us, a misuse of God's name, how are we gonna rightly use God's name? And you know the answer is really to cultivate an extreme reverence for the name of God. Cultivate an extreme reverence for the name of God. We're so casual today about all our names, aren't we? We're so casual about everything. We sort of try to democratize God, and yeah, Jesus is one of my buddies, along with uh, Frank and Sally and everybody else. Yeah, Jesus is right in there with me. He's one of my buddies. And, uh, and, and there's very little, even among evangelical Christians, in fact, maybe sometimes especially among evangelical Christians, because we want to feel like we're buddy-buddy, close, and we use the word intimacy all the time, and when we, we, when we think of intimacy, we think of intimacy of friends or a husband and a wife, uh, um, and, and very few of us cultivate this extreme reverence for God. And so how are we going to do that? How are we going to cultivate the extreme reverence of God so that we don't misuse his name? Well, first of all, one really easy suggestion, I would say, is to simply pray, hallowed be your name. If we look at the New Testament, when Jesus was instructing his disciples how to pray, he told them to pray this way. Now, most of us, the very first thing we pray, right, is about our needs, our wants, our desires, me. We often put ourselves at the very beginning of our prayers. And yet Jesus, the, the me stuff, doesn't even come. It's like, it's like the fourth request in his list of how to pray. The very first three requests are all about God. And the very first of those requests is hallowed be your name. Uh, the word hallow means, it's an it's a old-fashioned way of saying holy. And when we're asking for God's name to be hallowed, we're asking that in our own eyes and the eyes of other people, we would begin to see the name of God as the exalted, reverent, worthy name that it really is. It's, he's not just a chum. He's not just a buddy. He's not just in the, in the mix with Frank and Sally and all the other buddies we have. He's actually His name is actually so high and so exalted. Remember, the Jews were afraid to even utter his name. And remember all the things I said, they, they, all the uh, things they would do to try to make sure they didn't violate this. Uh, his name is so great and so holy, we should start praying that his name would be made holy, both in our own eyes and in the eyes of other people. We would begin to reverence him, with, and, 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 and our heart would follow. If we would start praying this way, our heart will follow. The second thing is, I would say, shun misuses misuses of the name of God we are so casual today both with his name and, and everything else now <clears throat> here's a way that I would get us all to stop being casual okay <clears throat> if um, if I if, if we suddenly had walking through this door if we had a whole bus full of 20 or so people and they walked in here and they said <clears throat> you know what we are all are in the most contagious stage of Ebola, and we're gonna come in here and give everybody a hug, all right? <clears throat> you would instantly stop being casual, wouldn't you? Okay? <clears throat> you would be screaming and running for the exits and pushing over each other to get away from the people uh, in the most contagious stages of Ebola, all right? Now, I'm, 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 those of us who know about what happens to Ebola with, with Ebola, you know why I would be saying that, um, the New Testament, and I'm not talking the Old Testament now, the New Testament actually says to treat sin like that, to actually shun it, to actually run away from it. Uh, one of Paul's phrases is to flee, uh, to flee sin, to flee immorality. You see immorality coming, you turn around and you flee, you run from it. There's a, there's a sense of like, uh, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, here comes Ebola, um, and it's coming to get you, and you have a few seconds to get away from it, okay? <clears throat> um, that's how we're taught in the New Testament to treat sin. Um, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Peter writes um, that sin is waging war against our souls. And a lot of us, instead of seeing sin as waging war against our souls, we're like, oh, yeah, it's sin. <laughs> yeah, he and I are old old buddies, we go way back, yeah. Um, uh, but instead, we're taught to shun it, all right? So if we would shun the misuses of sin, we would. if we would shun using his name as an insult or, or a, a curse or a profanity, if we would shun the casual use of his name, if we would shun blaspheming his name, calling his good reputation into question, if we would shun falsely um, uh, making an oath in his name or uh, using his name in any kind of manipulative and controlling and uh, magic way—that's um, that's what we're called to do. And and lastly, I would recommend working on convincing yourself of his name's holiness and treasure worthiness. If if you if if you're hearing this today and you're like, yeah, that's all good, but reality—I don't actually—I'm not feeling it. I don't actually actually think his name is like. That cool as, as cool as you're making it sound. <clears throat> if 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 we're gonna say we're followers of Jesus, one of the most important things you and I can do, one of the most important investments of our time, is to convince ourselves of His name's holiness and treasureworthiness. Actually, spend time working to convince yourself. Uh, one of the best ways we do that, of course, is we read the whole Scripture, not just the little parts that we like, not just the parts that bring us comfort, also the parts that terrify us, also the parts that uh, make us question, say, I that i don't know if I can believe in a God like that, uh, the parts that challenge us, reading all of it and seeing the whole picture of God that is created. Uh, that begins to train our spirits in how holy and how treasure worthy his name is. <clears throat> and One of the most important things we can do, and if I could have the worship team uh, come on up, we're going to... One of the most important things uh, to help us get our mind around just how holy and treasure-worthy his name is, and that is to look at Christ's sacrifice for us. It's to look at Christ's sacrifice. Um, The... uh, when God, the same God who showed up on Mount Sinai in thick black smoke with thunder and lightning and fire, this same God humbled himself all the way down to our level. He, when he humbled himself, you know, he could have become uh, the next Caesar Augustus and uh, um, been a powerful king who conquered his enemies. Instead, he became a lowly carpenter no real possessions to speak of. Uh, And for three and a half years, he was completely homeless. Finally came to the point where uh, they began to, he was arrested, they beat him, they spit on him, they insulted him, they mocked him. And he even allowed himself to be broken on the cross in his body in order to rescue us, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sins, to save us from our own darkness. He did that for us. He expressed his love in his humbling himself, him allowing himself to be broken, and even allowing his own blood, his own precious blood, and scripture says that the life is in the blood. He even allowed his blood to be poured out for us. And When we get a hold of the love of God expressed in that way, we begin to realize just how precious and treasure-worthy this God really is. So we're all going to uh, take part in communion in uh, a moment now. If I could have the elders and uh, deacons, if you guys could come forward right away and just go ahead and line up. Um, And uh, um, you guys can start the... A tune for that uh, in just a moment here. Um, when <clears throat> um, if if we find that in our heart there isn't very much reverence for the name of God, I would encourage you, even in this moment when we take communion together, meditate on his love for us. Meditate on how enormous his love must be that this same holy God who created everything holds everything together with his mere words this holy God would humble himself and become one of us Um, uh, in a moment uh, the deacons and elders are going to begin passing out um, this Uh, you are welcome if you're new here to join us uh, you don't have to have become a member or sign a statement of faith at this point. We believe in open uh, communion. However, we do ask and trust that you won't partake unless you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, unless you have entered into that covenant to make God your great king and you be his His subject. Um, also, um, each tray has uh, a little a smaller cup, and that is uh, gluten-free wafers, and you can, if you would prefer gluten-free, you can take that. So um, as elders and deacons begin passing it out, um, we are going to uh, go ahead and and start singing. We hold, taking the elements until we all do it together um, at our prompting. So